It would take over 31.7 thousand years to count to a trillion. So it's not surprising it was not too long ago the concept of a trillion seemed somewhat abstract or even far-fetched. However, at the time of recording, not just one, but five companies have a market cap of over one trillion. One key factor which ties all these companies together is the fact that they are platforms, meaning they don't just provide products and services, but provide an infrastructure for other organizations or businesses to provide them. And though it may be a personal choice what people read, watch, or listen to, these trillion dollar companies have a huge influence on what products and which businesses ultimately succeed or fail. And this is a fact that's attracting attention and criticism from governments and regulators the world over. I'm Will McCarty, content editor of National Technology News. To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Joost Reitfeld, assistant professor at University College London. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Joost. Thank you for having me. So just to kick things off, could you just introduce your audience uh, as to why big tech platforms are to such a high degree determining the success of what products succeed and fail? Yeah, sure. Um, so first of all, these platforms obviously facilitate a large marketplace for many sellers and even more consumers. And there's um, there's really infinite variety on these platforms, right? You can you can find practically any book on Amazon. There is a massive amount of content on platforms like Netflix. There are millions of apps available in the Apple App Store. And it would be impossible for a consumer to sift through all of these products by themselves. Um, and so the platform companies, um, on the one hand, they provide a valuable service by curating what is on offer, either through their algorithms or by selectively promoting certain products on their front pages. But by doing that and by making it a lot easier for consumers to choose those products, they have a massive influence on which products ultimately be successful and, and, and which are not, because they largely de determine what uh, consumers see and what they don't see on these platforms. Yeah, I mean... Obviously, what music you listen to is a personal choice, but oftentimes um, in the modern age, just whatever the YouTube algorithm or the Spotify algorithm is recommending. So these tech companies, though they're not artists themselves, they have a pretty big influence on a lot of things that you think are outside the domain, the success of video game companies, so on and so forth. And it's, it's quite concerning, to be honest. So could you maybe talk about the type of negative impacts that overly dominant platforms can have for consumers and for businesses as well? Yes, sure. Um, so, so first of all, I would say that there is also a lot of positive impacts that these platforms have, right? I mean, they create a lot of choice for us. I think in the process of having so many offerings, prices have gone down. They've reduced market frictions, if you will. It's become easier for consumers and sellers to find each other and to, to transact with each other. So. I think we should start from the basis that, in essence, platforms provide a very valuable service. But there's also negative elements to, uh, to, the, to, to platforms and, and to consumers and, and sellers operating on these platforms. And so, so one of them really is that they have a very strong influence over, again, which products are being highlighted and which products are receiving attention and, and which do not. And so there's if the platform likes you, so to speak, then your chances of success are 
much higher than when the platform doesn't like you. Um, and in, in many instances, there, there may not be a strong reason for a platform to not like you as a seller, but there could be. Um, and, and one fairly obvious one that is being discussed a lot recently is, for example, when you are competing as a seller directly with uh, a service that is being offered by the platform itself. So Spotify is a really good example of this. Spotify has brought a case against Apple because they feel that Apple is treating Spotify unfairly um, because allegedly Apple wants to favor Apple Music on its own platform over Spotify. And so it therefore restricts the freedom that Spotify has in promoting its service, in onboarding new customers, in facilitating payment options that uh, would work well for Spotify. Another example in this same um, domain would be uh, there are a lot of sellers on Amazon that offer valuable products. And Amazon has become very good at scouting its market of successful products. And once they see products that are very successful, which Amazon believes they can make themselves at a lower price, then they will do so. And so they will step in, they will kind of step away from their independent market facilitating role and become a producer of those products itself, which ultimately will drive out those sellers from the market because Amazon will be more competitive than they are because Amazon doesn't have to pay a commission to itself. And Amazon is a large company that understands its marketplace really well. And so naturally Amazon has a competitive advantage in that regard. So it's a very thin line, I would say. I think platforms are doing a lot of good to the world, but they have tremendous power and dominance. And ultimately these platforms are run by companies that have a for-profit motive. So they will act to the best of their interests. And oftentimes that will align with the interest of sellers and consumers, but not always. Yeah, exactly. I mean, big tech provides a lot of good for the world, or at least it provides products and services which consumers like very much. And because of that, and because of that sometimes uh, residual goodwill, they so almost get a pass to do things that perhaps smaller companies wouldn't. I mean, everyone can see the value which a platform like Google has provided to their own lives in the past. And because of that, they've almost risen to the status of public servants in some respect. So just to wind things back, could you talk about the snowball effect of how and why platforms become more powerful as they gather new users? And maybe give our listeners a little bit of insight about how these platforms become so massive in the first place. Yes, I think there's two fundamental forces at play here. And so one is network effects and the other is kind of learning from, from data. And I can explain both. So when you are starting out as a platform, you're actually facing a rather steep uphill battle because a platform brings together at least two sets of distinct customers. Uh, in the case of Amazon, this would be sellers and consumers. In the case of Apple's iOS app store, this would be app developers and consumers. In the case of video game consoles, this would be game developers and consumers. And we could even think, for example, as of newspapers as platforms that bring together advertisers and readers. And so the, the fundamental insight here is that 
without one side, the other side is reluctant to join and vice versa. And so platforms initially face a chicken or the egg problem. They, they, they have to focus their attention on one side of the market in the hopes that it will attract the other side of the market. And, and once that dynamic is in place, these platforms have the opportunity to grow exponentially because all of a sudden there are a lot of consumers on your platform, which attracts a lot of sellers. And then there is a lot of sellers on your platforms, which then attract a lot of consumers. And so, so you, you get this, as you say, snowball effect where the platform that has managed to attract the most users will grow bigger and bigger and bigger um, by simply by virtue of having the most users. So the platform itself might not even be the best platform in the market, but if it has the most users, then that will um, become a, an attractor in and of itself. So that's the network effect. And that makes it very difficult nowadays for smaller platforms to effectively compete with the Amazons or the Apples or the Microsofts of the world. The other element that is driving platforms continued growth are these learning effects. As a platform, you can observe every interaction and every transaction that happens on your platform. And you can learn from this. You observe all the data points and you can abstract away from those data points to derive valuable lessons. For example, about what services might be missing or what products the platform should offer itself. And, and here too, there is a sort of a network effect because there, the more interactions take place on your platform, the greater the opportunity is to learn from those interactions and the greater the opportunity is for the platform itself to improve itself. And so in tandem, these two forces make it really difficult for new technology platforms to break in the market and allow the existing dominant platforms to sustain their dominance over time. Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad you highlighted that because people are very quick to talk about the benefits of the capitalist system and how it supposedly uh, helps strong companies who produce good products to thrive and bad companies to die off. But to be honest, in today's environment, a lot of the time consumers don't really have the much choice of what platforms they actually use uh, once market dominance gets to a certain point. So this ideal of entrepreneurs creating a new platform in their basement and it suddenly going global sometimes seems a little bit unrealistic and the forces of market competition aren't really felt in their traditional or their positive sense. And what you said about data, I really like that as well, because these tech companies, they're not just more powerful than uh, the average company because they've got hundreds of billions of dollars. They're also more powerful than the average company because they've got billions and billions of units of data and they know a vast amount about a vast amount of the human population. And that just gives them an extra competitive edge, which the little people simply don't have. So moving on, just to give listeners a little bit of context, obviously the economy has been around for thousands and thousands of years. Are there any historical precedents or comparisons for the current um, platform wars that big tech is engaging in? or any comparisons for the, the type of platforms it's big tech is providing at the moment? It's a good question. And I will say clearly, historically, there have always been more or less epic battles between companies, but it does feel in a way unprecedented, the situation that we're currently in and the scale 
of the dominance of these technology platforms and their reach in the market, both in terms of their geographical footprint, as well as in terms of the scope of their product offering. They tend to be fairly diversified. So that feels unprecedented. Um, and then the, the, the next question to ask ourselves is, so what is driving that? And I think hearkening back to my earlier point on, I, I think this is in part driven by uh, these network effects and these data learning effects. But we, we have to recognize that there have always been network effects, but not to this extent. So why are the network effects stronger now than they were, say, um, 20 years ago during the early stages of digital technology? I think, on the one hand, it is because these platforms are less and less tied to a specific piece of hardware technology. And I'll use the example of a video game console. Right, a video game console is a platform and we do see network effects in the video game console market but because the platform companies in this industry have to introduce a new video game console every five to seven years essentially that resets their user base and this then allows for a competitive battle to start anew now we don't see that with the current technology giants they are more hardware agnostic. They are not tied to a specific technology hardware product. And so that allows for unabated network effects. So it allows for these network effects to, to roam freely, if you will. So that's, I think, one factor that's contributing to the scope of these platforms. And then again, the other is that everything nowadays is connected and that these companies can literally observe every interaction that goes on within their platform ecosystem. And that wasn't the case, say, 20 years ago or even longer ago. Yeah, exactly. So just to play devil's advocate, is having a very dominant platform necessarily a bad thing? I mean, we talked about video games briefly. So, for example, the PS2 had installed base of well over 100 million and then, as a result, developed one of the largest and best-loved catalogs in console history as a result. So consumers definitely benefited to some extent. What do you think of that? It's another good question. And it's a question that is really difficult to answer precisely because is it necessarily a bad thing? Depends on whose perspective you're taking. We touched on the example of Amazon before. And I think from the perspective of a consumer, there's not a lot wrong with Amazon, right? They have a, a massive selection of products and sellers. Their shipping has expedited to the next day and sometimes the same day. Um, if you are a prime customer, all of this is free. And so there's tremendous benefits to having Amazon around. But if you take the perspective of the sellers and particularly those sellers that are being displaced by Amazon itself, because Amazon decided that, that it wants to offer some of those very same products itself on its platform, then one could argue, well, from their perspective, there is a downside to Amazon's dominance. And then kind of from a societal perspective, we would have to ask the question, okay, so what then is the net effect of these different perspectives? Is it okay for Amazon to absorb and directly compete with some of its sellers if it benefits the larger consumer base. 
And then if it is okay, to what extent is it okay? Uh, at what point does it become problematic? Um, and the academic community is very much interested in this question. Like, is dominance bad and when is dominance bad? But because it is such a multifactorial question and challenge, we've not found a clear answer yet. Yeah, I think that question which you just brought up of what is the exact point that we can tell that dominance becomes a bad thing because I'm not following the technicalities of the case too closely but in terms of the current legal battle between the US government and and Facebook there's a little bit of why did you not say something before about the acquisitions why didn't the regulator step in to stop the Instagram acquisition five six years ago whenever it was and um, a lot of these decisions are very very difficult they're easy to make in hindsight, but they're very, very difficult to see at the time. And uh, it's hard to figure out what the barometer it is for really regulating these platforms. Yeah, and to add to that, I'm not a legal scholar, but a lot of the scholars in the antitrust space seem to believe that the de facto antitrust laws simply are unfit for digital platforms. And so... On the one hand, we're, we're looking at a fairly unprecedented situation in terms of the, the reach of these platforms. And on the other hand, there are applying a business model and strategies that antitrust regulation apparently is, is not very fit to cope with. So if I understand the discourse correctly, is we, we need... Uh, we likely need changes to um, current antitrust laws in order to fully appreciate what is going on with these companies and the extent to which regulation is required. Yeah, I mean, I know it's a bit of a cliche at this point, but technology does move much more quickly than regulation. And that's something that's going to cause a lot of issues going forward. So just linking into that, do you have any ideas about the steps which governments and regulators can take to limit the power of individual big tech platforms? Well, I'm certainly not in a position to, um, to give normative advice, but I, I do know some of the options that are being considered by regulators the world over, really. Um, and so the, the, the most draconian one would be to break them up, right? We, we, um, we could force Facebook to split off Messenger uh, and Instagram into separate businesses and they would not be allowed to use each other's users and data. So that would be one option that is, that, that's been given thought, uh, but it's, it's a very, very drastic one at that. Another one is to enforce data portability laws. Uh, if, if a user wants to hop from one platform to the other, perhaps they should be in a position to uh, carry over all the, uh, the data points that represent all the interaction that that user had on the initial platform, allowing the new platform to learn immediately from the new user without first having that user to interact on the platform for some time. So that, that, could, that could kind of bring the new platform up to speed more quickly. Yet another intervention that's being considered is requiring a clear separation uh, in terms of facilitating the market being the platform owner and selling on the platform. I believe in India, 
currently a law has passed that prevents Amazon from selling its own products on its marketplace to kind of keep that separation of, let's say, market facilitator and market participants. I think those are three of the most commonly discussed interventions right now. Yeah, so what you said about data portability, I mean, I think that really highlighted your earlier point that how can antitrust laws, which were developed decades ago, possibly accurately reflect and work for issues like data portability, which would barely even have existed 20 years ago? Yeah, absolutely. And, and the other thing is the, these technology companies have very deep pockets and, and you alluded to scrutinizing earlier acquisitions. And so that, that's another thing um, I'm not sure to what extent regulators can retroactively reverse certain acquisitions, but they've certainly become more aware of the potential power of acquiring a potential competitor or even a complementer to a platform. And so I think moving forward, uh, especially here in the UK, but I think also in the US, the antitrust agencies will be watching big tech acquisitions much more closely. Um, and they, I think they will, they will start applying a bit more scrutiny as well. So just linking in to the last topic, what steps could an individual person, an individual consumer, who's not a millionaire, who's not a billionaire, who's not a technology executive, what type of things can they do to stop these platforms becoming dominant, or at least not to make them even more dominant? I think that would uh, probably represent most of us. I think uh, not many of us are millionaires or tech executives, so it's a good consumer group to think of. So I don't know if we need to proactively stop these technology platforms from becoming dominant, but it might be good to support emerging technology platforms, new entrants. And so, so one way to do that is to multi-home as a user, meaning being active on multiple platforms. Right? So one thing that gives platforms a lot of dominance and power is if they have consumers that are locked in to their platform, if those consumers or sellers are exclusive to one platform. So one thing that we could do is, is be on multiple platforms at the same time and kind of distribute our consumption decisions uh, somewhat evenly across those platforms. Um, I, I'm not quite sure if there is many other things that we can do as consumers. Be aware of, of the fact that when you engage with a platform and even joining that platform is free and, and, and engaging on that platform is free, just know that you are the product in a sense, that your data is the product which is being sold typically to advertisers. So maybe a general sense of awareness that even if being on a platform is free, just know that probably you are the product actually. So just to round things off, I know predicting the future can sometimes be a fool's errand. But do you have any ideas about what the platform world might look like in five or 10 years? And particularly, do you think that consumer sentiment will change and consumers might be slightly more aware of some of these issues that are going on in the background? I think certainly that many of the players that are currently dominant will still be dominant, at least to some extent, in five to 10 years. I will say that regulation is not a matter of if, but when. So we should expect to see some regulation affecting these big technology platforms. 
Um, I'm not sure to what extent. I think we will see more battles, if you will, between the firms that are on platforms and the platforms themselves. One example that I really have enjoyed following is the court case between Apple and Epic, the developer of the highly popular video game Fortnite. And Epic did not only bring a case against Apple, but they've also started a coalition of app developers that are also dissatisfied with some of the rules and regulations imposed by Apple. And so I think we might start to see a bit more collective action against platforms. I think it's more likely to come from the seller side than the consumer side, though. I think the seller side, they have more of a vested interest in there being fair rules. They might have a bit more bargaining power than consumers do. And I think we will have to look towards antitrust regulators or regulators in general to maybe a bit more strongly represent our interests where that is needed. Yeah, I mean, it might be a a somewhat inaccurate comparison, but I always like to think back to the Industrial Revolution. So when you had all these sudden and incredibly significant changes in technology, it obviously caused a massive boost in economic productivity and the products that were available to consumers. But at the same time, the working people, the people working in the factories and uh, toiling in the cotton mills uh, in Victorian England, a lot of those people lived very, very bad lives and got very, very sick and just was not pleasant for them at all. But then over the decades and the centuries, we start to see more unionization and England and America moved towards what would be uh, considered to be more sort of liberal, fair societies in the modern sense of the word, sort of in the aftermath of the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, so I think there is a, there's, there's certainly a connection there with the current trend towards automation and big tech companies through machine learning and artificial intelligence, kind of um, to some extent, maybe replacing manual and human labor. But I don't think I'm in a position to to speculate on whether that will make us better or worse off. I think looking back at the industrial revolution, clearly we are all better off. But in the moment of that happening, obviously there were a lot of people that were dissatisfied with the trends at the time. So I think, you know, maybe in a hundred years, we will look back and, and we will think that, yes, we're all better off. But that doesn't mean that currently right now in the process of maybe the the, the new industrial revolution, um, consumers and, uh, and smaller sellers need to be looked after. No, exactly. It's a very difficult issue to predict uh, in any sense of the word. So thanks for coming on the podcast, though. So I thought it was a fantastic conversation. and I really appreciate anyone who takes the time out of their day to uh, come and speak to us. Thank you so much for having me.